Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you know, if you let your folks go without much you know, connection or connectivity, you run the risk of being the guy they don't need to talk to. If you have your staff that doesn't feel safe, then people won't feel safe when they come here. So what we looked at was making sure our employees felt safe, that they could pass the same information on to the people that they have to protect. Perhaps one of the concerns uh, about this technology is, is being prone to privacy issues. Where does all this data reside? Um, but that's true of any type of biometric technology. Join us for all that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Tim McCreet, CPP, is the Chief Security Officer for the City of Calgary, Canada, and a member of the ASIS International Board of Directors. Mr. Tim, welcome to Security yeah. Management Highlights, my friend. Well, sir, how are you? Good. Always glad to hear from you. You always have such good information for us. And today, we're going to talk about remote management of employees in the work and home environment. A lot of moving parts here, but give us give us three things that you really focus on when you think about this topic. Thanks. Yeah, there are three things that, that I really worry about uh, sitting in my chair as CSO for the City of Calgary. A couple of things to start. Let's first, we can talk about the training that we're providing to home users and how we're setting up our remote workforce or our work from home employees and setting them up for success. Also, we can talk about the human element, this idea of interaction and critical reasoning that users are needing to apply when they're working at home versus when they were in an office. And finally, the last one is, what's the controls that we have on the endpoint? Or how are you protecting that device at home? Is it managed by you, the organization? Or is it managed by the employee at home using their own device or their kid's gaming laptop? All right, let's talk about the training. You know, from my perspective, when I look at this idea of training, it's how do we set our users up for success? I know a lot of organizations have annual training that's provided to employees, or it's part of an overall education program from the cyber side as well. Every October, we, we celebrate Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and that tends to be a real focus for organizations for the month of October to talk about cybersecurity issues. But I think it goes beyond that. As we've sent you know a considerable percentage of workers home to stay at home and to work but once we get into 2021 and beyond, what does the new workforce look like? Are we going to have more folks working from home? And if we are, how are we training them to be part of the security solution and not part of the security problem as they start working from home? From our perspective, we need to be able to explain to employees in a real simple, straightforward way, some of the things that we, you know, we want to protect while you're working from home, some of that education and training programs we should be setting up for users at home, and to really explain the difference between what it means to be in an office environment and having that interaction with other other employees to working from home and being being here at home and being productive as well. So yeah, there's there's a there's a big gap that I think we all have to kind of understand what that is and then how do I react to that? How do I provide the right training so that I'm sending folks home and if they are going to be staying from home, perfect. But let's make sure that we're giving them a, the best opportunity we can to be part of the solution and not not you know raising the help desk volume calls every month. Let's talk about the human interaction element. I've been online for a long time doing what I do. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any employees. I work for myself. Uh, I get this isolation feeling, right? Don't we need to have mm -hmm. those conferences? Don't we need to get in there and, uh, you know, uh, go out for a weekly uh, pizza and bowling once in a while or, or talk to people in person? Tell me why this human interaction or lack of their uh, human interaction is uh, problematic and how we need to address that. Well, 
Well, there is, and you bring up a great point. It's this idea that as human beings, we're social by nature. Most, most people that I know like interacting with other people. Some people like interacting with their dogs more, but yeah, they will like interacting with other people. When we're at work in a work situation, there's this idea that you have a more human element. You have an opportunity to get out of, you know, get off, get out of your desk or get from behind your desk, walk down the hallway and talk to somebody else. Or if you got a question or you're looking at, you know, let's look at this from a security situation. You receive an email, you're not quite sure. It doesn't look really legitimate, but it seems that way. So I'm going to get somebody else to take a look at it. And so you walk down the hallway, find somebody you want to talk to or someone's opinion you trust, head over to your screen and take a look at it. We don't have that here at home. That that opportunity to interact or or to talk back and forth to, you know, to look at a problem from a different lens or, or to speak to somebody else about their, you know, their ideas. It's a bit different now when we're working from home. Now you have to schedule that that Teams meeting with someone, or you got to jump onto that Zoom conference call to see more of your team members. So it's different when you're working from home or you're you're working remotely by yourself. We, we've lost that human element. Part of that too is I think we have to make sure that as you know a user of a system. And as a security professional, we need to start looking at some of those concepts of critical reasoning as well. And, you know, I liken this to look, don't don't take all of your, your information and all of your news from just one, one single drip of social media. You need to listen and look around and, and to take a look at different avenues of information. That's part of it too here as well. And from a security perspective is, look, if you're seeing an email, you need to contact somebody if you have questions about it. Don't click on the link if you don't trust the link or or have concerns about a possible phishing campaign or, or malware coming on your machine. You know, take time away from the screen, step away from it, call your help desk or contact one of your security team members and ask some questions about it. That's what we need to start driving that behavior now when you're working from home. One thing missing in the online model, I think, is leadership in a traditional sense. How do we lead remotely? How do we motivate? remotely? How do we inspire remotely? Because in the old days, it would be you walk to the office, you might have a breakfast meeting once a week, you're interacting. You know, mine was an open door. You can come in and get information. I, my job was to feed people data so they could do their jobs. How are we doing this remotely? It's got to be a bigger challenge. It is. And that's, that's an awesome question. This idea that we've lost some of that connectivity, right? You couldn't just walk down the hallway or grab someone to go for coffee or, or schedule meetings. You have to look at things from a different perspective. Some of the trips, you know, that some of these tips and tricks that I've done here recently is I schedule daily phone calls with my leadership team. So we have, even if it's just 15 to 20 minutes, just to touch base and see how everyone's doing. And it, it doesn't even have to be about work stuff. It can be just about things that you're doing at home, stuff you're planning for the weekend. It it creates that commonality for us. It brings us back to that, you know, it's it's a touchstone for us. It's that time for us to sit back and reconnect as leaders. I, th I think also as security professionals and leaders, we have to take that time for each one of our teams and schedule more time now with our team members. One of my groups actually does two a day phone calls and you know it's about 15 people on the team and they reach out to make sure everyone's okay. Uh, we did that, we started doing that in the first part of the pandemic back in March. And this team has carried on that tradition all the way through till December. And it's a great opportunity just to touch base, see how everyone's doing, ask if you need any help with the projects they're working on, any risk assessment you wanna share with the teams. It's just a great opportunity for us. And, and with the new technology that we have, right, with some of the technology that's been in place, we couldn't have done this 15 years ago. If this pandemic had happened 15 years ago, it'd be a different situation we're facing. But now with the types of technology we have, that opportunity to collaborate between different groups and me, you know, myself and my team as leaders, taking the time out to schedule those conference calls and those video chats and make sure you follow through with it. I think that's key. 
That's where I go back to this idea of empathy. So one of the things that we need to do as leaders and professionals is reach out to our team and just ask that question. Like, how often do you want to touch base or do, do you want to leave it open-ended so that if you do need to chat with me for the last 15, 20 minutes of the day, or if you want to catch me just on having coffee early in the morning, I think that's where you need to find your space as a leader and they need to find space as you know one of your team members. What's going to work best for you? I think, you know, as some ground ground rules, you may want to put in a weekly touch base with the whole team and leave it at that. If everyone's busy and they're working really hard, you don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want to take somebody out of a project or a task that they're they're buried in and, and they're really working through the problem. And all of a sudden I got to go talk to the boss. That that doesn't work for me. So it's you need to find that balance and it's going to be different for each one of your team members. And for me, it's different from team to team. Some may need more time than others. Some may appreciate the opportunity to chat more than others. But that's where we really need to find our stride as leaders. And I think that's on us to find that balance. That's a good point. And, and it's a tricky one because you almost run the risk of being insignificant if you're too good a manager, if that makes any sense, right? <laughs> it does. And, and it's, you know, it's the person who's not heard or seen, right? So then why would they come to you with your problems, questions, or concerns? So I think that's where we got to be able to reach out and ask and, and you know, to, to really touch base with them to make sure, how are you going with that project? Or how's that risk assessment coming? Can do you have a chance? Can I take a look at the draft and maybe we can walk through it? That's where we, we come back as part of that team where we get re-engaged as leaders. So yeah, you're absolutely right. If you know, if you let your folks go without much, you know, connection or connectivity, you run the risk of being the guy they don't need to talk to. Talk to me about some of the technical challenges, how we have to be a little smarter about this now that we're online. We've heard about all these vulnerabilities and stuff. What's going on in this area? Let's make sure that do I have a managed endpoint in your home or are you using your own endpoint? and coming through a protected path, like through a protected VPN. That's a big issue, right? Uh, right now I'm sitting on a managed endpoint. So I have my organization's laptop sitting in my home. I've got a secured path or connection through to my, uh, you know, to my network at work. Uh, I don't have the capability of printing, which is just fine for me because we've created the electronic options for signatures, et cetera. So all of that information we put into place and we've had that in place for a while. Uh, just because of our response to other incidents and, and other events that we've had to deal with, like our flood back in 2013. So for us getting to remote workplace, we were we had a lot of that in place, but it means that we got to do our homework. If I'm allowing an unmanaged endpoint into my environment through a Citrix or a VPN or a tunnel, what am I allowing for functionality? Do I quarantine that device or do I accept that device? How do I restrict it so that you can get to see this part of the network and only this part? And if your machine is in, infected with malware or got ransomware on it or you know, you get hit with a phishing scam, you're not going to impact my network. That's my biggest fear is if I'm, if I don't protect or don't manage your endpoint, I got to make sure I put protections or controls in place to limit the type of damage you could do if someone took over your home machine and came into my network. Mr. Tim McCreet, the CSO, City of Calgary. Always good news, Frank friend. Always really good information, Tim. Uh, very insightful. I want to thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Hopefully we'll see you in Florida this year at ASIS. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. And everyone, please stay safe and secure. Thanks again. Dave Shepard is CEO of Readiness Resource Group, Las Vegas, Nevada. For seven years, Dave served as Executive Director of Security for the Venetian Resort Hotel and Casino, the fourth largest hotel in the world. Dave also served 24 years in the FBI in various supervisory roles, including 22 years of experience in SWAT operations as team leader and coordinator. Dave Shepard, MBA, MPA, JA. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. Now, today we're going to talk about reopening Las Vegas and really reopening everything. Uh, let's start off by talking about uh, the impact COVID has had. Uh, 
on Vegas and the tourist industry. It's really unprecedented. I don't think we've had anything like this in our history that I can think of. Well, the last time we had a pandemic was 1918 with the Spanish flu, but we really didn't have gaming until the 30s. So we started. But you're sitting there looking at an entire global pandemic, and we actually have customers coming from all over the world to come to Vegas. We attract them from Europe and Asia and pick a country that come to Vegas. That'd be for shopping, gambling, entertainment. Uh, we offer a lot here. But the pandemic has definitely changed that, restricted uh, flight coming in, restricted social distancing, travel. The pandemic is very, um, very deadly. What is the state of Vegas as of the time of this podcast? It It's partially open, about 25% maybe, something like that? Well, what we've done, the governor, we had a shutdown, uh, which we were shut down in March, and we were shut down for 60-some days, and we opened up again in, um, I think, June. And once we opened back up, we went to 50% opening. And then after a period of time, we went to a, another shutdown area, but it was not a shutdown as a reduction. It went to 25%. And that means that people inside a property can only have 25% of their normal occupancy, and that's how they count them when they come in. But the other side of the coin is we have several of the properties because of the travel areas from around the United States. That even our hotels have closed down to um, a lot of them on the strip are only open three days a week or four days a week. Now, our neighborhood properties are still open for public traffic, but a lot of the major properties are shut down. So it's a hit or miss on whether they're open or not for during the week. Now, Vegas is really an extremely unique place compared to the rest of the world. And like you said, almost every country on earth visits Las Vegas. There are similar examples in other cities. Let's talk about, for example, when Vegas thinks they'll be up to full speed compared to when other major cities with tourism think they'll be up to full speed. Well, you, you look at different areas to start with. And right now, uh, the number one city in the United States, or state, by the way, with 14.2% unemployment is Hawaii. State of Nevada comes in second at 12%. But the issue comes back with how do we look at the population to return? Because they have to feel safe to come in. They have to feel safe in their own city to even travel. They look at tourism industry overall and several countries and even most states in the United States deal with a tourism population, whether it be for state parks, national parks. And now as example, the state of California has indicated they don't anticipate their tourism industry to come back to 2024. And New York City, where there's 66 million tourist population, does not anticipate coming back to 2025. Now, people in Las Vegas think ours will come back a little bit faster than that. There's a lot of conjecture concerning that. And there's a lot to have to do with the uh, vaccine, how that's going to affect how people will travel or not travel. So that's where we are. There's still a lot of unknowns. Uh, there's still a lot that people are planning for. We just have to wait and see. If we're gonna, if we're gonna anticipate a moderately fast reopening, let's just say a slow opening, either one. Are we gonna have a problem with employment? Uh, you know, people operating at twenty-five percent of their hourly wage uh, or hours, right? I'm assuming they might be looking for other employment if this takes a couple of years. Will there be enough people, enough employees to reopen to full strength in that timeline? 
I think there could be enough employees as a matter what we're going to do in between. Because once we look at any kind of discretionary income society, it goes beyond more than one industry. You're looking at gaming, but you're also looking at travel, tourism, hospitality, uh, hotel, convention, and entertainment industries. Well, but you also throw in transportation because now you're dealing with Uber drivers, bus transportation. So there's a lot goes into it. So when people come to any particular city, they have to have the critical infrastructure components of that city established to take a work. Right now, there are not a lot of people coming, so a lot of things have slowed down. Are the people still here? They're pretty much still here in town. Once it goes back up, once it starts rising, we have a lot of people that take and return back to work, regardless of what particular property or size of property, we still have a good base of employees. Are there any concerns about disrupting the supply chains at Feed Vegas? Because as this pandemic draws out, we could see some supply chain interruption, and that may cause a different analysis on how to reopen. Well, supply chains is always an important component. We've seen that throughout the United States with the pandemic, how they're having problems for providing food, as an example, and have to plow under food in certain states for the crops. But right now, Las Vegas really doesn't have buffets anymore. So one of the features we have in Vegas doesn't exist anymore. So we don't have the buffets like we used to. Is that going to be an issue? No, we still get enough food in to start with. It's a matter of still catering for the people. So there's a lot of connectivity that still takes place. I know it's a Venetian, as an example, we had over 1,500 vendors we were taking dealing with. Depends on what particular side. Um, it's There's a lot of fallback for trying to get that done. Now let's talk about something that a lot of people aren't talking about. You've done a lot of research in this. This is the upcoming potential for a large, immediate homeless population that could hit all the cities. And of course, this is because we've deferred mortgages, we've deferred rent payments because of COVID. But that schedule to all kind of come due maybe on one day in the future. How is that going to impact our reopening? Well, that only affects the state of um, gaming. Uh, it affects every state in the United States. Current time, we have in between 30 to 40 million people in this country could be evicted by the end of this month. Certain states can take and extend their moratorium for their particular evicted population. CDC has their moratorium, but still it has certain conditions. So there are still people being evicted right now. So what are we going to be doing between 30 and 40 million people? That's part of the issue that has to be done, not only in Las Vegas, but every other city. Some cities have 300,000, 400,000 states have more than that. So that the population is what they're looking for between the CARES Act, the rental assistance program, the unemployment insurance payments that are coming out. There's programs the government's working on right now. Hopefully with those programs, it will take and help. But if it doesn't, then we have a real issue concerning where people go and how they have affordable housing for them in the meantime. So there is not one answer for this yet. It's a matter for all the right sources and groups working on this to have a viable national strategy concerning how to deal with the 40 million people, the 30 to 40 million people in the United States. It also includes California and includes New York, includes every major city. So that is a national concern. What are you looking at numbers for Las Vegas? What uh, part of that 40 million might wind up in Vegas being uh, homeless? Las Vegas is actually Clark County. Clark County is looking at pretty close to um, 
147,000 families, which equals out to about 300,000 people. One thing that Clark County has done, uh, there are some states that really have no program concerning how to deal with eviction populations. Clark County has a very aggressive program, and actually it's listed number one in the United States, in my opinion. We have five different opponents they're using to try to get people places to live, try to keep the eviction from happening, all the way from dealing with 1,000 different landlords and property managers to make sure they're taken care of and making sure we try to keep the people in place, looking at uh, rental housing for different type uh, sectors now, looking at hotels and refurbishing hotels and motels now, tax incentive program. Um, there's a lot going into it. In addition to going to our shelter program for families now, whether it be Catholic Charities, First Promise, um, Las Vegas Rescue Mission, there's a lot that goes into trying to take and help. The more we can sit there and help families, the better off we're going to be as a society and as a nation. Now, we've heard a lot of talk about uh, conferences, right? So I travel the country, and I used to do live interviews at, at security conferences around the country. We've had some recent surveys that say, you know what, 51% of the people aren't going back to a conference no matter what year it is. They're just going to change their lifestyle. Vegas, you know, has a lot of conferences, right? It's conference destination of the world a lot of times. And, of course, a lot of people coming to hotels and staying. How do we think this, this, this is going to impact Vegas? If we have, you know, 51% of the people that are worried about COVID and 51% of the people that are not, uh, how are we, we plugging that into our analysis for reopening? We're plugging in by one particular method, and that is the same thing we look at our employees. When I worked at a Venetian, I turned around and was able to take and hand out guest cards to people, and on the question on that guest card was, do you feel safe? Well, that same question, if somebody didn't feel safe, I would call them up and find out why they didn't feel safe, and that would be something I'd take and correct. But on the other side, I asked my entire staff and the people that worked there. It's almost 10,000 people that worked on that property. I talked to a lot of them and asked them the same question, do you feel safe? If you have your staff that doesn't feel safe, then people won't feel safe when they come here. So what we looked at was making sure our employees felt safe, that they could pass the same information on to the people that they have to protect and look after as our guests, customers, our vendors, our contractors, our tenant properties. It all runs under the same type of program how to keep people safe. So we've spent more money on trying to make sure people feel safe. We have programs looking at that that way now in any particular area. Use cameras now to look at, see if people are not doing what they're supposed to do on their different mandates that's in the city. So it's a different way. Our cameras usually were set up for criminal activity, civil type programs. Now we're looking at it in relationship to public health. So it's a different dynamic now, which we really didn't do before. Smart thinking, a lot of good stuff. Dave Shepard, MBA, MPAJA. Mr. Dave, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. A lot of moving parts there, but it sounds like uh, Nevada has this under control. Very impressive. Thank you for your time. Eddie Sorrells, CPP, PSP, PCI, is the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at DSI Security Services. Eddie is also a 2020 IFSCC Global Influencer in Security and an upcoming member of the 2021 ASIS International Board of Directors. Eddie Sorrells, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks so much, Chuck. Glad to be with you. Always good to talk to you, Eddie. You always have some good information. Today, the topic is facial recognition bans. 
interesting topic. Uh, we're not talking about facial recognition legislation where we kind of modify that, but we're talking about people that just want to get rid of it altogether. Give us an overview of, of, of first what's happening in the public. I guess we would call some of this political in one way. Yeah, Chuck, and, and of course, facial recognition is a technology that's being used in a lot of different ways, but there has been a lot of activity and discussion around uh, banning this type of technology by certain municipalities. Uh, Portland uh, was one of the latest ones to pass a very wide and, and broad sweeping ban on this type of technology, not just by law enforcement agencies, but actually public facing businesses, telling private businesses they could not use this facial recognition technology. So it's really become somewhat of a hot button issue. Uh, in certain circles, and that's really born out of a concern that the technology may not be as accurate as some claim. Um, some will suggest that it has a chilling effect on free speech, uh, facial recognition being used to surveil protests, uh, civil unrest activity, etc. cetera. Uh, so there have been some cities in the past, for example, San Francisco, Oakland, and some other smaller municipalities that have issued bans, but Really, it's been a reaction because some people don't really believe the technology is as accurate as it could be, and it may have a disparate impact on certain populations. Well, now, let's talk about that. That's my next question. Is the technology as accurate as they say it is, or are we, are we moving that way? I think we're moving that way. Like any technology, there certainly is some, some errors that, that are present in some technologies. But like any security technology, it's going to get better with time. Uh, and facial recognition is one of those technologies that uh, a lot of people use every single day. Uh, when it comes to unlocking your iPhone, for example, there's even direct-to-consumer camera systems, for example, the Google Nest, where you can set up facial recognition. Uh, and if I've got that camera at my house and, and Chuck, you walk up to my house, it'll say, hey, Chuck's at your front door. Uh, that's being done with facial recognition. So is it perfect? No. Uh, but there's certainly being studies done right now to really gauge how prone it is to error. Uh, but I think the benefits long term are certainly going to outweigh any concerns about this technology. Now, I've always looked at this technology as probable cause, as a lead. I've never looked at this as being conclusive. It's not a fingerprint. And even fingerprints, although they are 99.9% .9 admitted as evidence and exclusive, there's errors in everything, possibly reader error, right, that kind of thing. Are people misunderstanding the technology? Does anybody really say in any technical circles that, that this is conclusive evidence? I think it's very good lead generation. Well, it is, and I think it's one tool that law enforcement is using to really try to put the pieces together in any type of, of scenario where you are evidence collecting. Um, you, know, you mentioned fingerprints. One of the concerns uh, about this technology is, is being prone to the privacy issues, where does all this data reside? Um, but that's true of any type of biometric technology. You just look at the 2015 hack of the Office of Personnel uh, Services at the United States government level, uh, where I think there was over 5 million sets of fingerprints that were compromised. So you certainly have to have good privacy issues. But, but back to your point, yes, it's one a step in the investigative process or the crime solving process are the security functions to really lead to, to better preventative measures, but also to solve issues. Um, one of the things that have, have already been seen in facial recognition is solving things like missing persons. 
Uh, one of the most high profile cases back in 2016 was the Brussels airport attack. Uh, the FBI actually used some of their facial recognition technology to catch one of the bombers. Uh, so we're going to see the benefits to this. But yes, it's just one tool like a fingerprint or other piece of evidence to really try to go out and solve issues uh, using the latest technology. And I think everyone benefits from that, especially the people that are victimized. But society as a whole can benefit from that in the future. Let's talk about some controls. I am all for going slowly, making sure we get it right, putting safeguards in place. Uh, GDRP in Europe, I think, uh, you know, has some really good benefits and, and it's very thought out. What are we doing legislation-wise to support face recognition? There's a lot, of, a lot of talk about getting rid of it, but surely we're taking some steps to make sure that people that use it use it properly. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think we have to look in the future about really having rules and guidelines in place. You mentioned in Europe, also here in the U.S. as well, uh, things like the California Consumer Protection Act, um, uh, which you know companies and, and, and people have to abide by when it comes to privacy. So there's already efforts underway, certainly, A, to make sure the technology is as accurate as it possibly can be. Uh, one of the criticisms has been, uh, does it have an error rate with certain racial groups, um, uh, even gender? Does it have an error rate when it comes to female populations? They're really trying to fine tune the technology, but also making sure there are rules in place um, at the state and federal level to make sure that this data is secure. Uh, this data is not compromised. Uh, we live in a world where uh, all our personal information is subject to being hacked on any given day, so this should be treated the same way. So hopefully we'll see a move in the future, not just to ban this technology, but also to make it better, more secure, and more private. So let's talk about private and the private use of the technology. Uh, even if we went to some laws with public places and government agencies and that sort of thing, would the private sector use of this technology survive? And might it survive through consent? Um, I don't know, you, you consent walking into a store that uses the technology. If you, if you walk in, you're consenting to shop there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I think, you know, consent comes through the benefits that, that we as consumers uh, and our citizens really derive from this type of technology. I'll give you one very simplistic uh, example of that. Um, you know, we all carry around credit cards and ATM cards. Uh, if my card is stolen, lost, et cetera, uh, and I'm not able to cancel that right away, it would certainly give me a sense of assurance knowing that someone walking up to an ATM machine uh, would be subject to that two-factor authentication, one being facial recognition, uh, knowing that person can't use my ATM card because they're not going to be able to overcome the obstacle of facial recognition. Uh, so I think you're going to see, and again, just like some of the consumer uh, camera products that you can buy at your local um, department store and put up in an afternoon, they're even going to, to the facial recognition route because they see that benefit. So I think you are going to see people looking at the benefits and consenting, so to speak, because they want to drive that convenience, um, the increased security, uh, whether it's a direct consumer camera, again, I mentioned the ATMs, or something more severe like recovering a missing child or a parent with dementia. So I think consent is a big part of it. Um, you know, we all live in a world where we are clicking on terms of service all day long. Uh, we're disclosing this, we're disclosing that. 
Um, and all the big tech companies, of course, are way ahead of us as far as this facial recognition. So it, it's going to have to come back to what are we allowing? Um, just like social media, what are you allowing that, that company to track and, and how much information are you giving them? But I think consent's going to be born out of a sense of convenience, more security, and how it benefits the consumer at large. Everything comes down to the middle for a solution. You and I have talked about that before. Mr. Eddie, thanks again for coming on Screen Management Highlights. Ben, always good to talk to you. Always have the best information. And uh, good luck to you in the new year, my friend. My pleasure, Chuck. Always great to be with you.